Right, this is Access Reality. I'm Ali Kadili. We're privileged here today to have Dr. Jay Coakley. Dr. Coakley is a professor emeritus of sociology at the University of Colorado. For the past four decades, he has uh, studied and written about the connections between sports, society, and culture. Uh, Coakley is an internationally respected um, scholar, and his book, Sports and Society, Issues and Controversies, the 13th edition, is studied at universities worldwide. It's also been adapted in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and South Africa. And there are also translations in Mandarin, uh, Korean, and Japanese. Uh, Dr. Coakley's main work now focuses on uh, making sports more democratic, accessible, and humane for people of all ages, abilities, and classes. Thank you for being here, Dr. Coakley. Hey, thank you for, for inviting me. Perfect, great. So I'm gonna start off with a big picture question first. Um, what do you see as the role of sports in society? Can you give us some general statements or proclamations? Well, uh, I mean, that's a difficult one because, because sport uh, plays so many roles for different people in society. But uh, I think that, that ideally sport offers us an opportunity to, uh, to explore the human body movement integrate movement into our lives in in ways that are enjoyable and uh and it also provides when we when we turn sport into uh, a commercial activity it provides entertainment for people but i focus mostly on on the participation part uh where it provides people with an opportunity to to move their bodies in challenging and satisfying and enjoyable ways. Great. So, um, it's, I, I mean, I, it seems like there's a lot of positive attributes we can ascribe to sports. Um, could we also attribute to it some negative attributes possibly uh, to society, such as petty rivalry, uh, narrow-mindedness, tribalism, possibly even laziness for those who consume it rather than those who do the sports? Right. Um, maybe distraction from intellectual pursuits. Yeah, when we look at the consequences of sport, obviously they can be very positive on the one hand, very negative on the other. Uh, it can bring people together in ways that uh, uh, help them uh, cope with the rest of their lives, and it and it can create divisions between people that that could potentially lead to warfare. So. So we have uh, we have extremes on either side, on the positive and the negative. Uh, it provides, uh, like I said, people with opportunities to explore uh, physical movement in their lives, and and in other cases, it it puts people in circumstances where they lose confidence in their body, lose self confidence generally, and uh, and it would have a negative effect on them. They lose confidence because they failed at sports or why would they, or would they just view other people that are in a more ideal condition and well, figure out there's yeah, a big gap? Yeah, it, it could, uh, it could uh, destroy their confidence because they fail, but it's the context in which they fail that's, that's important. So we can give different kinds of meanings to our failure in sport and and if if we fail and are demeaned by other people in the process, uh, if if other people uh, focus on on uh, our failure on 
attributes that uh, are on our lack of attributes, then that can lead to a decline in self-confidence. So, uh, so you know, failure takes on different meanings in different contexts, given different kinds of relationships that people have. So, you know, what we hope is that that our our social network, the people in our lives, will provide us with the support that we need when we fail so we can move ahead with our lives and and eventually increase our self-confidence. So we've mentioned um, some very positive outcomes and some very negative outcomes associated with sports. Uh Um, Is sports just like neutral, like science, it can be used for good or bad? Um, So it's a reflection of us whenever it's being positive or negative? Or is there something inherent about sports that pushes from one extreme to the other? You know, I, I've, I've played with that question a lot. And I, and I don't think there's anything essential about sports uh, that pushes us in one way or another. So I would, I would use the science analogy where a sport can be used for, uh, for good or bad, for positive or negative. And, uh, and when people realize that, uh, they approach sport differently. I think that one of the things that prevents us from realizing that is what I call the great sport myth. And that is the belief that sport is essentially pure and good and that anybody who participates in sport or shares, anybody who participates in sport shares in that purity and goodness. And and what, what that does is it precludes asking critical questions about sports. And because People believe that sports are already the way they should be. And, and what happens then with sport organizations is that uh, they're not very transparent, they're, they're not accountable, and people don't demand that transparency and accountability. And then that can lead to corruption uh, when we don't question uh, the actions of coaches, for example, assuming that, that coaches know what they're doing and that sport is is all pure and good, that opens up the door for coaches to get away with all, all sorts of behaviors that are, that are negative and that affect uh, athletes negatively. So, and we've seen that recently with a number of cases ar- around the world, in the United States in particular, a number of sport federations are dealing with, with sexual assault and assault issues uh, related to coach-athlete relationships. Yeah. So you'd say that that has more to do with the kind of administration structure or business of sports rather than sports itself as a pure concept. Yeah. And I, well, I'd, I'd go a little bit deeper than that and say that it, that it's related to our failure to look at sport critically when we need to, uh, to ask critical questions about sport rather than simply accepting it as it is. And, you know, sport is, is a social construction. We use that terminology in the sociology of sport. And uh, because it's a social construction, we can, we can manage it, uh, organize it, play it, promote it uh, in different ways. So uh, if you ask critical questions about it, you're, you're going to make different decisions about those things than if you don't ask critical questions. In your opinion, should we um, view sports not as one monolith, but as two distinct entities? One um, 
is a beneficial activity that an individual engages in for health, psychological stamina, bonding with others, learning how to team play. And another being this giant commercialized machine, which truly has more to do with profits and mass entertainment rather than self-development. Yeah. Is, that a, is that a useful way to look at it to, to kind of uh, then go in and critique this aspect? Definitely, yeah. And, and I think that, that once sports become commercialized, uh, different kinds of things are emphasized. Uh, you know, we emphasize the spectacle rather than uh, the play element in sport. We emphasize dramatic expression rather than joy and spontaneity. Uh, you know, we... we we focus on people pushing themselves beyond human limits rather than exploring those human limits. So, uh, you know, I see it in terms of a distinction between play and, and spectacle. You know, when we commercialize sports, play gets de-emphasized, spectacle gets emphasized. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm constantly looking at at sports, all, all different kinds of sports, from youth through professional sports, in terms of, of the, this distinction between the play element and the element of spectacle. On the whole, would you say there's any truth to the notion that sports is overrated in today's society? Yeah, I think that, uh, that we've overrated sport without asking the critical question. So, we've allowed sport to become increasingly commercialized without understanding the implications of that. So, and a good example is, is youth sports and high school sports in the United States. So high school sports uh, are, are, are geared to uh, selection of the best athletes uh, and exclusion of, of people who don't have certain, certain skill levels. And so what we've done is we've created a system of sport that's more exclusive than inclusive. And, uh, and that precludes uh, all students from having experiences that would be positive in their lives. Uh, youth sports in the United States has gone the same way. We've moved from local neighborhood-based uh, youth sports where the emphasis has been on participation and relationships between the players in the neighborhood to a more, a more, a more commercialized system where, uh, where its uh, teams are regionally based, they're highly comp competitive, they're exclusive, they're based on a, a pay-to-play approach to, uh, to youth sports that excludes probably 50% of the population or close to it because they can't afford to become involved in those kinds of activities. And for the young people who are involved in those activities, they, they are uh, encouraged to focus on skill development and, and moving towards perfection rather than enjoyment, spontaneity, creativity, and the kinds of things that, that, uh, that I think make sport worthwhile uh, in the human experience. Mm -hmm. What does it say about a society when some people who play sports and do nothing else are venerated, given fame, uh, made multimillionaires, and in the other hand, you got scientists, intellectuals, scholars who were basically forgotten and unknown? Yeah, I think that that relates to a little bit back to the great sport myth and the notion that 
a sport builds character. That's another way of, of talking about the myth and that everybody who participates in sports has their character built. So they are idealized in society and they're held up as, as people who are the epitome of, of not just physical development, but, uh, but moral development as well. And, and we've seen all sorts of examples that, that, uh, that lead us to, to conclude that, that that isn't the case, but, but people don't go, don't go there for the most part. They continue to believe that sport builds character and they build athletes into uh, celebrities that, that, uh, that somehow transcend. Does that go back to our um, psychological um, bias or makeup, if you will, that when you see everybody else doing it, then it's just a given. The, the, like we don't tend to question the fundamentals of why everybody believes this or that construct. Right, and I, th and I think that's, that that's especially the case with sport. And if you look at the history of, of modern sports, uh, you can see that uh, the, the, uh, in England, for example, what happened on the playing fields of Eton led to England's uh, ability to colonize the rest of the world. Uh, you know, there was, there was this notion that, uh, that somehow sport was creating uh, positive kinds of attributes in people and, and nobody ever asked critical questions about, about that belief. Mm -hmm. And back to the commercialized nature of uh, sports today. Um, when you have teams that are supposed to be locally based, mm -hmm. but really have nothing to do with the city they're in. The players are from all from somewhere else. Uh, next year, they'll be different. Um, yet that team is supposed to represent that city or that geographic region. Mm -hmm. I, is, it, is that a bit of dissonance or? Well, I think that the people who are, are making money on sport realize that it can be a source of dissonance. And so uh, the, the major media companies, as well as the teams and leagues, uh, try very hard to market teams in connection with particular locales. And uh, when they introduce a team, uh, when you go to a professional game, you know, they, they will say, this is, these are your Indiana Pacers or your Denver Broncos. Uh, and, uh, and they emphasize that kind of connection when in fact, the spectators have no, no power whatsoever over the operation of those professional leagues and teams. So, uh, and, and people, people buy into that uh, partly because they, they've identified with teams and, and they, don't, they don't want that identity disrupted. Yeah. Um, what, what in the US, what has uh, traditionally been the impact of the major social determinants um, such as race, class, income level on sports and vice versa. How has sport affected those social constructs? Well, you know, there's a, a reciprocal relationship between age, race, ethnicity, gender, ability. And, uh, and, and when we look at any one of those factors, we see that 
that sport has, for example, in connection with gender, perpetuated a particular set of ideas about masculinity and, and about femininity. And for uh, the major part of modern sport history, that has led to the exclusion of women in sport and the glorification of particular attributes that are associated with masculinity that some people are raising questions about. So it's also uh, exacerbated uh, social class divisions in, in many cases uh, and, in so, in, and also racial divisions. So uh, now we can, we can also find examples where sport has, has diffused racial divisiveness, but uh, but for the most part, as sports become increasingly commercialized, what we've found is that opportunities to participate in sport and control sport usually go to the people who are white, who are the most wealthy, and who are male. And those are the people who are, are pulling the strings. And, and by the way, they're not pulling them in, way that are, in ways that are going to work against their interests. So let me give you one example of that, where uh, President Trump uh, just put together a, a committee to, to bring sports back uh, after the coronavirus crisis or as it, as it levels off. And, and the people he put on that committee are all white uh, and they all represent the profit side of professional sports. They're the commissioners of the major sport leagues, they're team owners, uh, they're the head of the uh, UFC, the head of the World Wrestling Federation. Not one player association representative is on that committee. Nobody's representing the players, nobody's representing the kinds of challenges that the players would face if, if they were brought back to play in front of TV cameras with no spectators around. So, you know, that's, that's one of the, the issues that we have to be concerned about and raise, a critical, and raise critical questions about. Who's representing the players within, within that context? And, and that kind of a scenario exists throughout sports commercialized sports. Does that tell you that President Trump looks at sports as a business? And that's how he's oh, viewing it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he, and, he, he looks at it as a business and not just as a business, but as, as an activity that can be manipulated for his own purposes. And, uh, and in the process, players just become uh, expendable. Uh, they're, they're replaceable. They're their products to be traded, bought, sold, and used in ways that are going to generate profits for Trump and his and and other multi-billionaire team owners and league uh, officials. Yeah. So, could there could could you view it as he's looking at it as a one of the engines of the economy? Um, it, you know that, that so that's. That's how he's kind of put that together. Yeah, I think that, that he would probably say that, but uh, professional sports, even though it generates, uh, what, 12, uh, 12 to 
$17 billion uh, in the NFL, for example, in the United States and, uh, and the other professional sports uh, generate revenue streams that are slightly less than that. You know, those, those are, are important in certain locales uh, and for certain people, but there are many, many other industries that have a much uh, more significant impact on the economy than sports do. So, uh, but I think he's looking at sports as also symbolic, uh, as, as uh, in response to this crisis, as symbols that things are getting better and that he he is in fact making things better. So, uh, so you know, it's a complex issue, but uh, I don't think sports uh, are, are a driver of the economy like most, uh, many other major industries are. So, and, and we're seeing that with, uh, with for example, his, his uh, suggestion recently that he's gonna shut down immigration from Mexico, which is going to preclude the picking of all sorts of fruits and vegetables in California and also interfere with meat production and uh, and other kinds of food production that may become serious uh, uh, issues as as the crisis continues. So, you know, sports plays a relatively minor role compared to s some other industries. Okay, so he's kind of looking at it more as a marketing or PR kind of campaign rather than... Yeah, and he's an absolute master at that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, back to the race relations issue. Um, I get what you're saying in terms of the management and the decision makers in the sports leagues are all of a certain class. And But wouldn't you say that all the players that are presented to the world as these are your venerated heroes, the vast majority in the U.S. at least are minorities, um, has that must have had an impact in on, on race relations in the U.S., given how popular and widespread sports is? Yeah, it, it has. And, uh, and I think that, that we also have to, to stop and think about the certain sports like football and, and basketball versus, and, and boxing, for example, versus, you know, 25 other sports that most of which are predominantly white. And when you look at, for example, college sports in the United States, what you see is that basketball teams and division one sports and, and football teams have a majority of African-American players. But the other 16 to 23 sports in, uh, in the uh, NCAA are almost 100% white. So, uh, so what's happening is that, is that uh, we see a desegregation of sports under conditions when uh, other people can reap the benefits of the participation of African-American athletes. Uh, professional sports would have never been desegregated unless they had, had been generating profits for white owners. And Branch Rickey, back with the Brooklyn Dodgers, made that point explicit uh, when he uh, signed Jackie Robinson to a contract. So, uh, and as far as, as diffusing racism, 
uh, I agree that, that it has among a number of people. But uh, the other thing, if you look at, at the history of, of race in, in sports, in, in North America in particular, what you see is that blacks were excluded because they were defined as inferior by whites, that they just couldn't measure up. And then when, when it became clear that, that blacks had physical skills and could certainly compete with whites, then whites changed their racial ideology a little bit and said that, that blacks uh, had physical skills that, that were related to uh, uh, the fact that, that blacks were at a lower state of evolutionary development than whites. So, uh, and they started saying that the blacks excel physically, but not intellectually. And that particular approach to, to race and to whiteness and blackness uh, was prevalent from the 1930s all the way until uh, the present time. So, uh, so people who have racist ideas have used sports to reaffirm those ideas. People who are a little bit more open to thinking about race in critical ways uh, have, have, have looked at uh, what's going on in sport and had their minds opened up a bit. So, uh, so this is a constantly emerging process and I don't know where it's going to end up. I'm, I'm hoping that it ends up on the positive side, that people will start to see that, uh, that skin color is an irrelevant characteristic uh, when it comes down to uh, bio, you know, biology, intellectual, and psychological, and other personality factors. Yeah, so the segregation of uh, sports in North America, according to race, sociological status, and other things is a very interesting topic, and we'll get to it a little bit later. But I was more thinking that the, in terms of the popularity of the NFL, let's say, compared to all these other sports, mm -hmm. like boxing, it kind of eclipses a lot of other um, smaller, if you will, uh, sports businesses. So that's what I was thinking of in terms of the widespread impact of that on race. Okay. And explain that a little bit more to me. I'm not... Meaning that it's you can find a lot of sports where um, what you said is true in terms of it's only whites or it's only this or it's only that. But on, in the NFL, which is that is the number one. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's the number one sports in the in the United States, right. and um, you know the Super Bowl, the events like that, and Football Sunday and college football, and so you got in the most common, popular, predominant sport. Um, you're having this um, kind of racial mixing, if you will, or right. um, the, the pushing of minorities forward. So that, that's kind of what I was thinking of, is that mm -hmm. even though there's segregation elsewhere in smaller sports, the effect is asymmetric, more towards race unification. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, I've, I've thought about that a lot. What kinds of implications does that uh, desegregation in in a sport as visible and popular as football have on the rest of society, and uh, and I don't see it uh, contributing a whole lot to desegregation in other parts of our lives. You know, while the NFL has become increasingly popular and people are rooting now for African American athletes who who uh, were 
were possibly racist in the past or certainly weren't uh, fans of, of African-American athletes. Uh, they're, they're living in school districts that are increasingly racially segregated now. I mean, we're, we're, moving, we're moving backwards in many ways when it comes to race in the United States. So, uh, so you know, to what extent do people take those, those orientations and perspectives that they have when they're watching uh, a sport like football and apply them to the rest of their lives? Uh, to other major institutional spheres, uh, you know, work, school, law, the justice system. Uh, Has there been any research on this? Well, you know, there isn't research that's, that focuses on, on individuals and, and whether they carry over their attitudes related to sport to other spheres of their life. Uh, you know, people who can be rooting for uh, for a black quarterback uh, in the Super Bowl right now, uh, will be fighting like mad to keep their school district from having uh, various kinds of desegregation policies. So, so, how do you explain that? Well, it's that it's that uh, that it's easier for them to accept this figure on television, uh, or as a member of a crowd of 80,000 people watching a, a, an NFL game, it's easier for them to accept the presence of that black quarterback than it is to accept a black quarterback on their child's high school team. Uh, you know, in sociology, we use the concept of social distance. Uh, and this is an interesting one, given the terminology that we're using now with respect to the coronavirus crisis. But, uh, but the closer, the closer the social distance, the more people are apt to act on their, their racial ideology and their racial attitudes. So, uh, so they're able to compartmentalize it. Yes. Um, compartmentalize it. So, you know, in other words, uh, it's fine to be rooting for a black quarterback on, on television, but but when it comes to blacks joining your tennis club, your golf club, your swimming club, and hanging around with your kids, uh, and and having uh, young black men interact with your young white daughters, uh, people have a harder time with that. White people. Does it go the other way too? Um let's say you have uh, neighborhoods of Mexicans or African-Americans or what have you, any type of immigrants, will they accept anyone from outside that group, uh, even amongst minorities, not necessarily whites? Um, yeah, intergroup relations is, is complex. And uh, yeah, whites don't, don't have any exclusive uh, ownership of, of uh, negative racial and ethnic attitudes. So those attitudes can exist in any particular group. And, uh, and uh, some of the divisions between various ethnic groups in the United States have been as strong and as destructive as any form of white racism or bigotry uh, through the years. And although I'd want to qualify that uh, because whites have more power than, than any other ethnic group uh, or racial group, so uh, they're able to act on 
on their bigotry and their racism in in more destructive ways than uh, people in various ethnic groups. But the negative attitudes themselves, uh, uh, no no group has has uh, uh, what. Uh, you know, monopolies. Exclusive, yeah. Yeah. Monopoly or exclusive ownership on those attitudes. Yeah. And you wonder if the dynamic of being a minority um, plays into that, um, plays into the consciousness of minorities so that you, you become even more fiercely protective of your little group. Um, because it's you, it's your group against the world kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you become defensive. Uh, it's in your mind all the time. Uh, you know, once once you're in a if you're in a group that's classified as as a minority, then you're at a disadvantage, and that that disadvantage is something that that weighs on you heavily. And if you don't if you're if you don't take it into account, you're going to get yourself in in trouble. And whereas if you're a member of the dominant group, uh, whites in in the North American case. Uh, whites with a uh, a European background then uh, then you don't have to think about skin color uh, you don't have to think about ethnicity in your everyday life because you're part of a privileged group I mean you have advantages and and people don't ask critical questions about their advantages but when you have disadvantages those are things that you have to be aware of all the time um, could it be, um, and I don't know if there's been any research on this or thoughts on this, but because it's the issue of the whites being the majority has been the most studied issue, but could it be that there's more pressure on the majority to accept minorities, whereas there'll be less pressure on a minority to open up and accept anybody from an outside group because, hey, we're just a minority. Um, yeah, that one, uh, you know, I'm not familiar with with research on that. Uh, I think that that there are people in both dominant groups as well as minority groups who are open to interacting, obviously, a, a, across racial and ethnic lines. Uh, and uh, and we see examples of that all all over. But I think that uh, so much depends upon the specific contexts within which that interaction occurs and if it occurs in a in a situation where uh the majority of people are from uh an ethnic uh minority background and a white person enters that the white person is going to be sensitive to their own whiteness but that happens very seldom to the majority of white people so uh, so I think it happens, well, it happens much more often to people in, in racial and ethnic minorities, and they're, they're much more conscious of that status than, than white people are, and they react to that consciousness in different ways. In some ways, they, they're able to kind of put it in the, the back of their minds and, and, and interact without it interfering too much with... Uh, how they present themselves, but in other cases, it has a major impact on how they present themselves. You know, they they leave their their ethnic heritage and their racial heritage uh, back home, and they 
put on a different presentation of self when they're interacting within a, a dominant group setting. Yeah. I wanted to shift towards uh, sports in the U.S. versus other countries. I know mm-hmm. you've done some work in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, generally speaking, how would you say sports in terms of its impact on society is different in Europe versus the U.S.? Yeah, I, th- I think it, it varies from one country to another, uh, depending on various kinds of historical factors. But, uh, you know, I used to think before I had a, a, a lot of international experience that sport was more important in the United States uh, than it was in other countries, that sport fans here are, are, are more uh, committed to their fan identities than people in other countries. But as I've... Then you met soccer. <laughs> yeah, then I met soccer and, you know, team handball in Slovenia and, uh, and volleyball in Brazil. And, and, you know, so what we see is that uh, uh, sports have different histories in, in every country. And, and those histories uh, are related to the way people define them and integrate sports into their lives and the sport fans in Ireland are are probably uh, more committed and with identities more integrally tied to various kinds of sports than than fans in the United States so uh, so again it, it varies from from one country to another and I don't think that the United States is too unique except when it comes to the extent to which we've commercialized sports and people in other countries have used that as a model. And now I'm not saying we're the only ones who've done that. I mean, obviously the premier league in England uh, set the stage for commercialization through the rest of the world of, of soccer. So, uh, so basically, uh, you know, this commercial model that, that, was embraced fully by in North America and in Western Europe and in the UK in particular is a model that has affected sports in the rest of the world. But that's tied to colonization. It's tied to economic power. And, uh, and just like in other institutional spheres, uh, the wealthy, powerful countries uh, set the normative structure within which activities occur. Yeah, what um, what can the most popular sport in a country tell you about their country? Like, for example, when you look at basketball and how it's common in inner cities, and you'd say it's because it doesn't need much space, you don't need a specialized turf, you don't need any expensive or fancy gear or equipment. So likewise, or specialized stadiums, let's say. But likewise, what can, let's say, table tennis tell you about um, China or cricket tell you about India? What is the fact that um, football is very uh, common in the U.S. but not soccer at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the well, I'll deal with the easy one first here in the U.S. Uh, you know, football is popular because it was it was invented in the United States. Uh, you know, people took rugby and turned it into so-called American football. Uh, they did the same thing with with baseball. Uh, Volleyball and basketball were invented in the United States. And those sports received the vast amount of of financial and uh, 
and political support, you know, in schools and communities, and uh, and they've become the popular sports uh, across the board in the United States. So, uh, you know, that that history then uh, is is tied to American identity, and and soccer was excluded in the United States for the most part, because it was tied to immigrant groups, European immigrant groups, uh, and their, their ethnic heritage. And even though soccer teams did exist um, in, in labor unions and, and in various neighborhoods in the 1920s and the 30s, it was never accepted as an American sport. It was a sign that you hadn't been assimilated, that you hadn't acculturated, that you were hanging on to your ethnic past. And it wasn't until upper middle class white people uh, who had traveled around the world started endorsing soccer for their kids that soccer started to become popular in the United States. So, you know, it's, it's linked to our history, to our racial history, our ethnic history, to, uh, to our American identity over time. So, uh, and, question there. and that's the case in other countries as well. Yeah, you're not a historian, but um, if independence had ha occurred, let's say, 100 years later than it did, uh, do you think soccer today would be the most uh, popular sport in the U.S.? Was it, that, was, it, was, it, was it that cut off from the, uh, you know, from the British that, okay, now we have to do our own, make up our own thing? Well, it's possible. Uh, you know, I th well, well, we'll use Brazil as an example. You know, why, you know, Soccer was brought to Brazil in connection with colonization. Uh, you know, that same thing didn't occur because of historical factors in the United States. So, uh, so Brazil uh, ultimately embraced soccer, embraced it on their terms rather than on British terms, and, and it became the most popular sport in their country. But, uh, you know, soccer people will tell you that the style of soccer uh, the the meaning of soccer is is much different in Brazil than it is in uh, among uh, uh, Britons. So uh, so the the soccer was taken, but it was redefined and integrated into Brazilian life in ways that didn't happen in the United States because of historical differences. Do you feel that the that sports are the most popular sport uh, takes on a more nationalist and political streak in foreign countries compared to the US? Well, uh, I think it, it gets displayed in different ways. And, uh, you know, we see the nationalism uh, in connection with sports in the United States when it comes to certain uh, uh, events, international events, the Olympics, the World Cup, and so on. But, uh, but in other countries, in Europe, for example, there are international competition is an everyday affair. So, so you have people uh, having their national identities reaffirmed on a, on a much more regular basis in other parts of the world than you do in in the United States in particular, nor North America in general. And uh, so much of, nor of, of 
sports in the United States are internal to the United States, and we don't have a lot of international competitions. So uh, whereas in Europe, international competitions occur every day. So, so there's this reaffirmation of national identities uh, that occurs in a different way in Europe than it does in the United States. Overall, in terms of the impact of that on society, would you say it's a net positive or negative, or is it a wash? Yeah, I think it's pretty much of a wash. Uh, you know, I, but that ebbs and flows. Uh, you know, the positive, positivity and negativity kind of ebbs and flows. And, uh, you know, there, there have been times, uh, uh, for example, during the Cold War, uh, where, where the Olympics in particular became a site for people to uh, to reaffirm the the superiority of their political and economic system in in the United States versus the Soviet Union and the whole communist bloc countries. So, uh, so you know, at that particular time, uh, sport was used explicitly to reaffirm the differences between, uh, you know, democracies and, and I am sorry about that. So let me go back and say that, uh, that during the Cold War, uh, sports were explicitly used to reaffirm the differences that were imperiling the entire world at that particular time. So, you know, the medal counts, people from the Soviet Union, people from the United States looked at those and used them as proof of superiority uh, of their systems. And, uh, and now, uh, you know, that the Cold War is gone, but there are other kinds of divisions that, that get accentuated in connection with with international events, uh, and there are there are times when when differences get get diffused in connection with international events as well. So it's it's really hard to say whether there is an overall positive or negative effect. I think it varies from from one decade to the next, and in some cases it's a wash, in some cases it's more positive than negative. I think this is becoming a theme that it's, it's difficult to tease out the effect of sport on anything because it's so interrelated and tied with everything else. Well, you know, that's exactly uh, the point that I make in, in, uh, in my writing and in my teaching is that we have to look at the context within which sport occurs before we can start talking about praising it or condemning it. And, and we have to know about the conditions uh, that surround sport before we can make conclusions about what it's doing. So because sport doesn't have an essence that leads to one set of consequences worldwide from one historical point in time to another and from one culture to another. You know, that's just uh, a myth that we have to get beyond if we really want to understand what sports are doing in our lives. Right. And I wanted to move on now to another topic, which is the uh, sports and youth. And I know this is something which is another specialization of yours. Mm -hmm. um, now, I, from my own experience with people, I've seen that um, coaches play a significant role in the upbringing of youth as they're growing up. So to the extent that sometimes they are the main moral 
uh, guides in someone's development. Is there an issue with malleable minds, you know, being shaped in terms of their morality, their character, mainly by coaches and with the parents in some cases, not even knowing what's happening? Yeah, I think that, that this whole notion of, of coaches being uh, moral guides for young people in sport is, is uh, a crazy one. <laughs> uh, you know, is it, is it happening? It, well, you know, the, when you look at, at data, and these data are a few years old, in the United States, there, were, there have been national surveys that have, uh, that have pointed out that coaches are seen as the most important role models in a young person's life, other than parents. So more important than teachers, more important than ministers, more important than, than, than any other adults except parents in the kids' lives. And, and that's a really interesting one. And I think it relates to the great sport myth that I've talked about. Uh, you know, why is it that we see coaches who, who come from all sorts of different backgrounds, have had no formal training uh, in terms of being a moral guide to anybody, uh, and in some cases have had no training in working with kids and understanding, uh, you know, developmental processes, the difference between six-year-olds and 11-year-olds and 14-year-olds. They've had no training whatsoever, but they're being defined as role models. Now, where does that come from? Well, you know, I think it comes from the, this notion that sport is essentially pure and good and that coaches share in that purity and goodness and we're gonna turn our kids over to them despite the fact that they have no credentials uh, that we would demand of any teacher in, in any school uh, and, and any babysitter and any childcare center, but we don't demand it of coaches. So I think it's an unreasonable expectation, you know, that, that coaches be a moral guide for young people. And, uh, and if, if, if we uh, saw it that way, we would probably uh, be able to prevent certain kinds of abuse and some of the problems that exist in sports today in terms of coach-athlete relationships. So my feeling on this is that when you put young malleable minds in their, in their development, um, you know, for a long, you know, for hours on a day with coaches, we're telling them what to do, how to move, how to think, how to spend their day, that it's just inevitable that they are going to be a massive influence on their lives. Um, so the question then is, if, they, if they're going to be a massive influence anyway, what do you do? Do you um, say that you can't become a coach unless you have taken some training in leadership, let's say, or um, do, do, we, do we have to have higher standards then for coaches if they're going to play that role? Definitely. Yeah, I, I think that we do that in education and in childcare generally. And uh, and I think we ought to take it much more seriously in connection with sport. Now, the problem with youth sports is that they've been run by volunteers and coaches are volunteers and have been volunteers uh, for the most part until recently, where now with club sports and pay to play programs, coaches are getting paid. And, you know, I think that uh, it, it's difficult to make volunteers take uh, uh, coaching education courses that last more than a couple of hours. So, you know, the, they'll resist that. But, uh, but I think that 
that what we have to do is impress upon those individuals that they're playing very important parts in the, in the lives of young people. And that if they're going to coach, they have to make a commitment to learning about who it is they're dealing with and what kinds of, of approaches to those young people are going to lead to constructive outcomes and which ones aren't. So, I mean, that's, that's just a no brainer. Uh, and to, to, uh, not have any kind of training is really irresponsible. Is that just the lack of awareness from society in general about this issue, which is why no pressure is exerted to push things to that direction? Yeah, I, I think that uh, people have separated uh, sport from other spheres within which their kids are interacting with adults, uh, and they haven't made the same kinds of demands of coaches that they've made of other adults who are working with their kids. So uh, this, is, this is something that uh, I think parents are becoming increasingly aware of. And as various, as various problems become apparent in, in the way certain coaches act and have treated kids, so and young people generally, uh, not all coaches, by the way, you know, I, you know, my criticism here is, is not aimed at, at individual coaches. Uh, there's, a, there's a number of individual coaches who have, who have uh, gone way out of their way in order to learn about the young people they're dealing with. And there's, there are programs that have some good coaching education associated with them, but those are, are more the exception than the rule. And I think we have to make that the rule. Yeah. Um, now, um, I know you're not a child psychologist. Um, this pro question probably is more appropriate for, the, for someone like that. But mm -hmm. um, when parents sometimes encourage their kids to play multiple sports, um, so they're doing multiple things, they might drop out of a sport or they might just switch from one to the other every season or every year. Mm -hmm. um, what impact do you think that has on someone's upbringing, upbringing compared to sticking with one sport, perfecting it for all these yeah, years? Yeah, there's, there's really good research on this particular question. And, and, you know, early childhood specialization in a single sport that, that you retain through your youth and into your adolescence uh, ha has all sorts of problems associated with it. Uh, you know, the basic one being that you don't develop a full uh, a, a full array of physical literacies. Uh, that that physical literacy uh, is not developed when you focus just on one sport. Uh, you you then uh, have an unbalanced uh, muscular structure and strength structure, and that leads to uh, possible injuries. Uh, it it, it uh, also uh, increases the likelihood of burnout. Uh, it decreases the likelihood that you're going to participate in sports in your adulthood and stay healthy and, and fit uh, and lower medical costs and other kinds of medical problems that can interfere with your life. So specialization is has created many more problems than it's than it's solved for sure. And multiple sport participation is definitely uh, the the way I would suggest, and other people who have looked at the research would suggest going when it comes to a child's involvement in sport. 
That's interesting. You mentioned that um, specializing in just one sport early on and sticking with it will decrease your likelihood of being involved in athletics later on. And I always thought it was the other way around because if you become so good and, you know, at one specific sport, you're likely going to play that sport later on rather than just, oh, I played five or six different things and I, there's not one thing that I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unless you burned out or injured out and, and, and unless you've uh, uh, just become tired of that particular sport or as you become an adult, that particular sport doesn't fit into your lifestyle. So, you know, the football, American football is the most popular sport in the United States. And, and I don't know any adults other than the ones who end up playing professional football who are playing football as adults. So, uh, you know, did playing football as, as a young person open up your eyes to the possibility of playing other kinds of sports? Well, maybe, maybe not. But uh, but if you specialized in football, it probably precluded developing experiences on other kinds of sports that would be much more suited to your adult lifestyle than, than American football would be. So, uh, you know, now, you know, there, there are some exceptions here. You know, if you learn tennis and you stick with it, chances are that you're, you're going to be able to continue playing tennis as an adult. But... Uh, what we found is that people who have played multiple sports, uh, including tennis, for example, during their childhood, are going to be much more physically active uh, when, they're, when they're adults because they feel co- more confident in a wide range of physical activities. So, you know, I'm 76 years old and I don't, I don't play any of the sports that I played, went to college on a scholarship to play basketball uh, you know, played various kinds of baseball and, and, uh, and highly competitive softball growing up. Uh, you know, I don't play those sports anymore. So, you know, I'm, but I ski, I do things that I can do uh, uh, at my own level uh, where, where I'm not forced to compete against people who are going to push me to a point where I'm going to become injured. So I'm doing things now in settings where I have much con- much more control over physical activities. And that's what keeps me active as, as a person in my mid-70s. Uh, so, uh, you know, my multiple sport background uh, really paid off in the long run. So as I was growing up, I played 20 different kinds of sports, both in organized settings and, and in informal settings. And... And that really gave me a background that a lot of kids today don't have. Yeah, there was the um, there, there was a trend. Um, this isn't new about uh, youth sports being non-competitive. For example, you see it a lot in soccer where they play, and there's no such thing as keeping scores. Um, what, some people have said that that's harmful because you know you take away the drive and the competition to win and. And some people have said, no, it fosters kind of cooperation. Where do you stand on that? Yeah, I think I, I use the metaphor of, of uh, salt and food. You know, salt makes food uh, more interesting and it brings out the taste. But if you just pour, you know, half a cup of salt on your food, it's going to make you sick and you're going to you're going to lose your appetite for that food. And that's the same that happens with competition 
in youth sports with kids is that a little bit of competition uh, is great because it, it creates a challenge. And if that challenge is, is uh, what uh, compatible with the skill levels that you have, then, then that's gonna be a motivational factor for you. But if you end up in a situation where the competition is intense and your skills uh, don't allow you to participate in a way that's satisfying, you're gonna be turned off to sport and quit. And by the way, that's happening with the majority of young people who are participating in highly competitive sport, youth sport programs. The majority of them quit before they're 11 years old. So, you know, we've just put too much salt on their food. And, uh, you know, and there's all sorts of other analogies. You know, eating fruit is great uh, in your diet, but if you just ate fruit, you'd, you'd eventually die. So, uh, so to focus on sport to the exclusion of other kinds of activities in your life is not going to contribute to overall development. So, uh, you know, those are, those are pretty obvious things when you stop and think about them. So uh, we've, we have to apply them to youth sports uh, a little bit more than we do right now. Yeah, so you view it as a normal bell curve where it's, 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 it's competition is very useful, but after it crosses a certain point, it becomes detrimental. Like, like all other things, moderation. Right, right. Well, yeah, it's, but not moderation necessarily for everybody. I mean, some, some people, uh, when they develop particular kinds of skills, they're, you know, we all look for, uh, and, and let me just go back a second here. When, when I've done uh, research on, on kids uh, who are playing sports, both organized sports, informal sports, and, and uh, informal games, and just playing, one of the things that comes out of that research is that kids are interested in action, in personal involvement in that action. They're interested uh, and motivated by controlled challenges, and uh, they want to reaffirm friendships and relationships when they play. So uh, when you look at those four factors, you know, youth sports can provide you with all all four of those things. But once youth sports become adult supervised and adult controlled, uh, one of the things that adults try to do, for example, in baseball, is they'd love to get a pitcher who will strike 18 batters out in a six inning game. Well, what does that do? It destroys action for the players in the field and for the batters. It, it destroys personal involvement in action. Uh, and it it makes the challenges uh, uh, so severe and so so high that 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 kids are no longer motivated by them. And if you take those teams and have them not be neighborhood based anymore, have them be regionally based, then it's really tough to reaffirm the friendships that you have on a day to day basis. So what we've done in some of our youth sports is to destroy the four main things that are enjoyable for kids in youth sports. So uh, what we have to do is, is figure out ways to incorporate more action, more personal involvement in action, and more controlled challenges into youth sports and more friendship reaffirmation. And by the way, uh, we have movements in the United States right now and 
and in Canada uh, with some of the people who have worked with uh, LTAD, long-term athletic development, and in the United States with Project Play and with a number of other organizations that are trying to say, look, we need to incorporate more uh, free play in our organized team practices. We need to give kids a chance to play informal games in those practices so that it broadens their experiences in ways that are gonna keep them involved in physical activities throughout their entire lives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another thing is uh, graduating now to a higher level. What's, um, what has been the impact of college level sports on formal post-secondary education? Um, sometimes you hear stories about, you know, uh, people being accepted into Ivy League schools where they would have never been in there uh, based on academic qualifications alone. So that kind of has to have an impact on education or, or what is it? Yeah, there's been all sorts of good research on that. And, and uh, one of the things that's come out, and, and this varies a little bit from one university to another, is that, uh, that athletes get a special consideration when they're applying to a school. And that's one of the reasons that, that motivates, uh, you know, all these upper middle class parents to keep their kids in, in uh, high performance sport programs is they think it's going to give them an advantage when they apply to uh, various colleges and universities. And in, and in certain cases, it does. And, and we recently saw that with the scandals uh, on admissions uh, in the United States where parents were paying to have uh, their children represented as athletes so that coaches could accept them under the eligibility requirements for, for normal students at, at a particular university. So what happens is that uh, it, it, it changes the, uh, the level of qualifications of at least certain students going to university. But I think more than that, it changes the culture of the university itself. And, it, and we've seen that at the high school level as well. The high school culture in the United States is very different than it is in Finland, for example, and, and in other European countries where sports are sponsored uh, at a community level through a club system that is separated from schools. So once you separate the sports from the schools like that, uh, the culture of the school ends up emphasizing education in, in different ways than it does in the United States. And, uh, and we're really hesitant to take a good critical look at that in the United States because interscholastic sports at the high school and college level are so deeply integrated into the whole system of education. And we're afraid to ask some good critical questions about what it's doing to education. So- I think uh, some people in the world, if you, you know, if you told them you can get into Harvard or Yale with low academic qualifications just because you play sports well, they'd be shocked to hear that. Has, has there been any, any research to quantify the effect of dilution, let's, you, let, let's say, on the educational experience or milieu in these places because of sports? Yeah, uh, the, you know, we have not done the good cultural studies. Uh, we've done studies of individuals comparing athlete grades with, with the grades of students who don't play on varsity sport teams. 
We've looked at graduation rates at the university level, but we really haven't studied uh, much about the cultures of those, of those institutions. And now, the, the, there's a few exceptions to that. Uh, uh, some research indicates that, that when you're a student at a university that has a top 10 football team, for example, or basketball team, that during the season, you will study less, you'll go to the library uh, fewer times than students at other schools that don't have a, a team that's ranked in the top 10 or the top 20. So it seems that once sports become highly publicized in a particular institution, usually because of a, of a winning team, uh, that, that that can actually discourage, on average, the amount of time that people spend on their academic pursuits. And, uh, and it also uh, raises the likelihood that there'll be an increase in certain kinds of social activities that will take attention away from academic pursuits. Now, when those, when those studies have been done and people have read that, nobody has stopped and, and said, what are we gonna do about this? You know, is this a problem or not? And, uh, and university presidents have, for the most part, said it is not a problem because it's bringing in money and publicity to the university. And they don't say it this way, but if, if our universities are taking a little bit of an academic hit in one realm, we're getting some money to do some academic and research things on the other hand. So, uh, so we really haven't taken a good close critical look at what sports are doing to uh, the organization and culture of educational institutions. That's absolutely mind blowing. And uh, I mean, you can, uh, look, there are some objective measurables here, like the normal distribution of grades, let's say before this happened and after. And I know there's gotta be other factors that need to be teased out, but. Um, yeah, I think a lot of other factors have to be teased out too. Uh, you know, the grade things, we know that athletes, uh, uh, when we do good critical research, we know that athletes on top teams are, are graduating at a much lower rate than uh, than other students at the university, and uh, uh, now that doesn't apply to all sports. Uh, the so-called minor sports, the non-revenue producing sports, oftentimes have graduation rates that are higher than the rest of the student body. But you've got to remember that some of those sports are pulling from. Uh, higher income level families, uh, upper middle class families that have been able to afford, uh, you know, their, you know, the pay to play programs that their kids have participated in. And uh, they've also had uh, great support for their academic pursuits, you know, when they've played those sports. So uh, they end up doing well if they're playing golf or if they're playing tennis or, in some, you know, whether they're swimming. Uh, they're, they're coming from a different social class background than kids who are playing football or basketball. Hmm. And yeah. by the way, by the, way the, the young people who are participating in football and basketball in the Division I programs are generating the revenues that make scholarships for those kids from upper middle class families possible. So we have kind of a reverse 
uh, income distribution here where where the young people who are coming from lower income families are generating the revenues to benefit benefit kids and provide scholarships for kids from upper middle class families, kids who could probably go to university without their scholarships. Yeah. Hmm. So again, the roots, the problem here is the money in the sports rather than sports themselves. That's one of the problems. And, and it's what we do with that money and how we spend that money and how we use it uh, in order to uh, benefit this or that group. Great. So last question, um, re with regards to this current coronavirus virus crisis, do you predict, after this is all said and done, do you predict there'll be some long-lasting effects on how sports or commercialized sports is conducted? Yeah, I have thought about that a lot in the last uh, month. <laughs> and you know, I'm really interested in, and and I hope that we can do some research on the power dynamics that are related to the so-called revival of sports. So, uh, for example, uh, you know, as sports have been suspended, and as many sport organizations are are not going to survive this this uh, layoff period, what's going to happen when sports come back? Are they are they are they going to become more democratic and humane and accessible because people have, have uh, you know, had to come to terms with how important sport could be in the lives of, of young people who have been excluded in the past? Or are the people who have the power and resources going to simply extend the, the, the programs that are the most exclusive and, and uh, the ones that cater most to the people with the most money, uh, you know, which, which way are we gonna go? Uh, you know, are the, are the so-called eagles, you know, the, the, the leaders in the organizations that are gonna survive, are they gonna become vultures and just eat up the other organizations that maybe uh, were more accessible and and more democratic, and turn them into uh, uh, more exclusive kinds of of participation opportunities, or are we going to go the other way? And I I don't know about that. I think that universities are going to are going to be a really interesting test case here because a lot of of uh, intercollegiate programs are going to be in serious financial trouble. And, and some of them are maybe going to abandon their intercollegiate programs and move towards a, a more division three kind of model, uh, a model that's more inclusive. Maybe they're going to have more intramurals that would be much more in, in, inclusive and, uh, and have a much kind of a different kind of an impact on the, on the college culture or are division one programs that have some money in reserves, are they gonna be taking over and become the, the epitome of what college sports should be like? Uh, and I'm not sure which way we're gonna go. So if the president picked you to kind of head this transition back into normalcy, mm -hmm. um, what would you do exactly? And you, you can make all the decisions. Yeah, I, I, I would start with youth sports. And I'd say this is our opportunity to really take a good close look at youth sports and what we want them to be in our society and, and how we want, want to get to that point. 
And if we want sports to contribute to the health and well-being of young people and lead to uh, uh, long-term, lifelong participation in physical activities and sports, then maybe what we ought to do is create uh, is to revive sports in a little bit different way than they were before this uh, virus crisis. So and, exactly how? Exactly how? What would you? And, and make them more inclusive. Make them more neighborhood-based. Uh, make them more focused on developing physical literacy up to age 12 or 13 years old. Uh, not eliminate competition, but de-emphasize it and 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 use it as as a, a way to create controlled challenges for young people that, that will motivate them rather than overwhelm them and drive them away. So, uh, and, and we could do that. Uh, we could uh, revive community-based sports and, uh, and, and hopefully convince the people whose resources have driven this exclusive pay-to-play approach to sports to have their resources go to maintain community-based sports that would be more inclusive, provide a wider range of different kinds of opportunities for young people across a much wider range of different kinds of sports. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure, Dr. Coakley. So, been a, been a pleasure to talk with you, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Great. Thank you.